Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. A few weeks ago, I said, I can't believe it's already Easter. And now I can't believe it was just last week that it was Easter. It just feels like, holy cow. Well, friends, we are in the book of Hosea. So go ahead and turn there, please, to the book of Hosea. And we left off uh, a couple of verses into chapter 6, which is where we're going to pick up. Uh, But let me just remind you uh, just of a couple of things. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1 of chapter 4, sort of the the mode of writing, it it transitions, it changes. And so chapters 1, 2, and 3, there was sort of this picture of Hosea and his wife Gomer, and that was designed to depict the relationship that God had with his children, the Jewish people. Uh, As we begin into chapter 4, we move away from that picture, and now it is just a series of statements that are made from the Lord about the people of Israel. And so the first of those is chapter 4, and it goes into a little bit, basically through chapter 5. Now we're in the second of those statements from the Lord that we're going to take a look at in our passage today. We're going to uh, cover some ground Today, we, we've installed seat buckles for you uh, because we're going to move a little bit here. Our goal being to finish up 6 and uh, chapter 7. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us as we make our way through. Lord, we pray that these words would be uh, edifying as well as, Lord, that they would teach us, Lord, and challenge us and grow us uh, and hit home, Lord. Lord, that this wouldn't be just some academic lesson learning about some things that occurred a few thousand years ago to some people uh, that we don't even know, Lord, but that you would use the living and active word to speak to our hearts today in the present. So use us, we pray. Use this time, I I should say, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So sandwiched between then that that first statement, chapter 4, chapter 5, and now the second statement, which is going to begin in chapter 6, we have these words. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Now those words sure sound like a good sign, don't they? Or they look like a good sign. Here's a nation in chapter 4, chapter 5, they were called to repent. It sure seems like they are, doesn't it? It says, come, let us return. Let us know him. He struck us. He's torn us down. Subsequent actions, though, are going to demonstrate that any sort of repentance that goes on in those opening verses is a short-lived repentance, if it's a real repentance at all. Because very soon you're going to see they're right back at it again. It almost seems as if you have that situation where they have gotten themselves into trouble and they're really sorry about getting into trouble. And they want to get out of it. And so they begin to go to church or things like that. And you know situations like that, no doubt you have probably yourself been in circumstances like that. The verse there, it says in verse 1, it says they had been torn. And so what do they want then? They want to be healed. And so let's return to the Lord so we can be healed. We don't like this pain. It's uncomfortable for us. There's a story that was told of a convict that was released from a Kansas prison. He had just finished up seven years in prison for fraud. 
And upon his release, he immediately acquired somebody else's credit cards, and he went on a spending spree across the state. And he stayed in first-class hotels, and he ate at gourmet restaurants, and he even flew a private plane. He was caught, as you can imagine, everybody gets caught, and he was brought to trial. And in court, the man confessed what he had done. And he asked the judge if the judge would pardon him. And the reason he said is, Judge, because I know it was wrong, and I've learned my lesson, and I will never do it again. Now the judge, unimpressed, said, Look, I've learned that courtroom confessions typically last only until the criminal gets to the door. And I think that's what's going on in this situation here in the book of Hosea. This is, if you will, it's a courtroom confession of sorts. They've gotten in trouble for their offense. They're feeling the pain of the discipline that has come, and they want to get out of that pain as quickly as they possibly can. So they're willing, it seems, to say anything. And maybe there's a modicum of sorrow here, but it seems that they're just trying to say anything that'll make the pain to stop. And again, they seem repentant. Look at these words. They have the right vocabulary. They say things like, let's return to the Lord. They, they acknowledge who God is. He'll heal us. They say that he has struck us down, and so let's pray that he'll bind us up. They say, let us press on there to know the Lord. And they're all great-sounding words. They're good words. But in and of themselves, they're not repentance. Because a person cannot truly repent unless there's a realization of what they're repenting of. There has to be an acknowledgement of sin. And look back over those words again there in verses 1 through 3. Never is the word sin mentioned there. They don't mention what it is that they themselves have done wrong. Also, look down to verse 14 of chapter 7, just for a moment, real quickly. Notice what the Lord says now at the end here. He says, they do not cry to me from their heart. They wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves and they rebel against me. But notice he says, they don't cry to me from their heart. And so the statement sounds wonderful, but they continue to rebel against the Lord. And they don't turn from their evil ways. And so in spite of this wonderful picture of repentance, and I, I think verses 1 through 3 ultimately speak of the repentance that the nation of Israel will undergo uh, after the period of the tribulation. And well, they'll acknowledge Jesus Christ to be their Messiah as the one who comes in the clouds. Uh, Zechariah, I believe it is, 14.2, 12.2, something like that. It says they're going to look upon him whom they've pierced and they'll mourn for him. And so I think that's what it's speaking of. But in the, the context of just the, the, what's going on in this scenario that we have here, it's, a, it's not a real repentance. It doesn't appear to be. So notice what verse 4 goes on to say. He continues to charge them. That's what he's been doing. He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Verse 5, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. The Lord says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, and there they dealt faithlessly with me. They hadn't actually repented. And so the charge that the Lord has brought, remember when, two weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 4, I sort of compared it to this courtroom in which the Lord is the prosecuting attorney. He presents the information. And he brings this charge. He continues to bring this charge. Here now in verse 4, he says, your, lo your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Now we're coming up, or we're in the midst of, 
uh, one of the two times during the year when the morning dew is the heaviest and where you can go outside on your grass and your feet get soaked and you've got to change your socks and things like that. But what happens within an hour, two hours, once that sun comes out, your son can go out and mow the lawn. Your daughter these days can go out and mow the lawn because the grass is plenty dry. It quickly burns off. There's no trace of wetness to be found. That's what the, how the Lord describes Israel's repentance. It's like a morning cloud which quickly burns away when the heat comes out. It's like the dew that's quickly dissipated as soon as the bright sun shines down on it. And he says both Ephraim, now remember Ephraim was the largest tribe of Israel, so it's a pseudonym for Israel. He says both Ephraim and Judah, this judgment is upon you. Both of them, they had their moments of goodness. Maybe before you came to Christ, you had moments of goodness. You decided you're going to turn over that new leaf. You know, I'm really going to live for the Lord or live for good things, you might say, or whatever it may be. These guys, they had their moments of goodness, but those moments don't last. Like the dew, they quickly are burned away. And I think a lot of us have those experiences like Israel in our lives. We have our scared straight moments. Most of us, while we're driving down the highway a little too fast and the police car comes up behind us and we repent and we repent and we turn over a new leaf and we will never speed again, we've determined, until the cop gets far enough away and then, you know, we're right back at it again here. But we've determined, I'm going to be good. I'm committed to living right. I've decided to turn over a new leaf. But before long, what happens? Your motivation, it wanes. You no longer have the willpower. And you find yourself once more right back doing the things that you promised that you would never do again. And the reason is because those moments of goodness, and they're great, I'm glad we have them. But the reason why they don't last is because we need something more than just some motivation. We need something more than just sort of this determination, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. We need both the personal desire for righteousness, but that must be coupled with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That God's Holy Spirit enters into our lives, does a work in our lives. That's when true and lasting change will occur. And sadly, in the context of what we're studying, Israel's not there yet. Judah, we're going to see, is not there yet. And their commitment to the Lord is just this thing that will quickly burn away. It's here this moment, but it's quickly gone. And because now their repentance is not true, the Lord's judgment must continue. So look on verse 5. He says, look, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. The Lord's essentially saying, I've tried. I've said these things to them. I've sent people to them. But notice, he says, but my judgment goes forth. You might add the word there. We don't normally add to the Bible But for the context here, my judgment continues to need to go forth or have to go forth. He says in verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And I find this to be one of the most interesting parts of our study today, at least I do. And that is this, they, they keep bringing burnt offerings. They keep bringing their sacrifices. They keep going to church. They keep even having their daily quiet times and attending their men's Bible study or their women's Bible study. They keep doing the ceremonies and the rituals, and yet their heart is far from the Lord. For while they keep doing those things, they're also sacrificing to idols and even sacrificing their own children to idols. But they went to church on Sunday 
or they had their Bible time or whatever it may be. It, it reminded me or it caused me to think of, this is like the husband or wife that is openly engaging in an adulterous affair, but who nevertheless purchases his wife a Valentine's card. And that wife receives that card and she, or that husband, you, know, you can keep your card. I want you to be faithful is what I'm looking for here. And so the Lord says, look, what I desire is not that you come to synagogue or temple. What I desire is not that you bring your burnt offerings and all those other things. And there's a place for them according to the Jewish system. He says, but what I desire is steadfast love. Some of your versions say mercy. That's what I want from you. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I desire knowledge of me rather than knowledge about me or rather than these empty burnt offerings that you're bringing. The Jews knew a lot about the Lord, but their actions here demonstrate that they didn't really know the Lord. The Jews were good at bringing their sacrifices, but they had forsaken mercy in their lives. And rather than burnt offerings, what God really wanted from them was their hearts. And he wanted hearts that would be full of truth and hearts that were full of mercy. Part of the reason I bring it up today, again, not just an academic study, so, oh, that's interesting. That's what he wants for us. He wants hearts that are full of truth and hearts that are full of mercy. He wants an intimate, not us to have an intimate knowledge of him, not just a knowledge about him. On two different occasions, Jesus quotes this verse in the New Testament, this uh, particular verse about, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. In both instances, he's dealing with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, we could become Pharisees. We can become religious leaders. We can become those, not just that we judge other people or things like that, but that we go through the motions of our religiosity. Well, the Pharisees were those particular individuals. And in both instances where Jesus has to address them, has to speak to them, they are giving Jesus a hard time questioning his judgment that he would extend mercy toward people who in their mind don't deserve mercy. I'll quote it for you. This is Matthew 9. It says, now in hearing this, Jesus says, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. But for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, in their self-righteousness, what they had determined was that the only people that deserve forgiveness were people like themselves that didn't need forgiveness. And Jesus makes it very clear, if you don't need forgiveness, you'll never be forgiven. You'll never be forgiven. In their self-righteousness, they thought they knew the Lord, but their hearts were very far from the Lord. And what God desires for us is a soft heart that extends mercy toward others. And why do we do that? Because we know that God has extended mercy to us. And it just comes forth. And these folks here think that it's okay to be a jerk. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to say that word or not, um, but I, I, I went for it. That it was okay for them to act in the ways that they were acting toward others as long as they performed a bunch of rituals every now and again and they went down to the synagogue or the temple. Isaiah addresses this in Isaiah 58. We're not going to go through the whole chapter, but I would encourage you. I don't always give you homework. I'm going to give you a little homework tonight. Would you read through Isaiah 58? Go ahead and jot it down. Some of you just roll on your eyes at me. Write it down. You have homework tonight. All right, we'll have a quiz next week. But read through the chapter. But let me just give you a few verses here to give you a sense of it. And it's just a few of the many. Isaiah 58.3 begins, On the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. 
Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking one another with wicked fist. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. But fasting's good, isn't it? No, it stinks. I hate it too. You're with you. No, but fasting is good. We're called to fast and do those things. So here's someone, they're motivated to fast. But in the midst of it, they're exploiting their workers. They're getting into arguments, getting into fights, and their day ends with a fist fight. Somewhere along the line, somebody missed the point of coming before the Lord and fasting. It goes on in, in Isaiah 58. He says, is this the kind of fast that I've chosen only a day for people to humble themselves. That is, they, they would put on the cloaks of fasting. They wouldn't eat. They would basically dirty themselves. He says, is it only for bowing, bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? What you call a fast, is this acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke, is, not, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn from them? It, does your fasting, does your religious actions, your going to the temple, offering your sacrifice, whatever it may be, does it change you as a person? Or are you a jerk? who does those other things. I guess it's okay to say the word. I've done it twice now here. But you go and you do your own thing and you mistreat people and take advantage of them. But you performed your religious duties so all is well. The Lord said, is that the type of fasting that I've chosen? In addition to your homework there in Isaiah 58, Amos chapter 5, 21 to 24. Isaiah chapter 1, 11 to 17. Psalm 51, 16 to 17. They all address this issue. It's scattered throughout the scriptures. But the Lord wants a hold of our heart. God must have reality. That's what God wants. He wants reality. And everything else, any other sort of relationship with him that isn't real and that, you know, we just kind of do some tasks, it mocks him essentially. And he demands reality. And with hearts far from the Lord, these people, they continued to bring their sacrifices. Verse 7, it says, but like Adam... They have transgressed. Now, your version might say, like a man, uh, or like men, they have transgressed. Adam means man, essentially. And the idea is, in the same way that God had made known his will to Adam, God has made known his will to us. And what did Adam do to the, to the will of God that was made known to him? He broke it. He transgressed against it. So, too, here do these people. They go their own way. Verse 8 continues, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Verse 10, in the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. Verse 1, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. Now there's a number of different cities or, or nation names that are here. So you see Gilead, you see Ephraim, you see Judah is mentioned there, Samaria is mentioned there. Gilead is a city that's mentioned about 120 times in the Bible. Gilead was one of the six cities of refuge that was provided for the Jewish people in the land. 
Now, you may recall that when the Jewish people came into the land, all of the tribes were divvied up portions of the land, almost like counties or states within the nation of Israel. And so there was this one for, uh, you know, the the people of Dan, and this one for the people of Judah, and this one for that particular tribe, and the other one. One tribe that was not allotted any land was the priestly tribe, the Levites, those the, where the priests would come from and those that would serve the priest. And instead of having a portion of land and tucked away in this corner of the property, they would be given cities within, if you will, the counties of all of the other uh, tribes of Israel. Does that make sense so far? Six of those particular cities, priestly cities, were called cities of refuge. And you can read about them in the book of Leviticus and I think again in the book of Numbers. We just considered it on Wednesday evenings. These were the cities meant to be occupied by the priest and by the Levites of the Jewish people. And notice what he says here in verse 8. Even Gilead was defiled by their sin. Gilead is called a city of evildoers. And so rather than being this godly city that would serve as an example of others, verse 9 goes on to say, instead, they're robbers lying in wait. They're murderers. They commit villainy. But again, they still offer their burnt offerings. And they still bring their sacrifices. Look at verse 10. The Lord continues, In the house of Israel I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Again, Ephraim is Israel. Same name or a pseudonym. Same people. And he says, I've seen a but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are heated like a heated oven. Said that wrong, forgive me. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with the mockers, verse 6, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me, calls out to me. Now, beginning in verse 7, we've just seen two of them, four different images are going to be given to describe uh, the people of Israel. None of them would be considered good images. So in verse 4, 6, and 7, they're called an oven. In verse 8, they're called a, a cake turned not over. In verse 11, they're called a silly dove. And then we'll see eventually down to verse 16, They're called, depending on your version, either a treacherous bow or a faulty bow, like a bow and arrow. A treacherous bow or a faulty bow. And again, none of those are meant to be uh, positive images. Verse 2, let's go back over it. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Their deeds surround them. They're before my face. The problem with Israel and the problem with Judah is one that we should take notice of because it, it can become a problem in our lives as well. What Israel and Judah both did is forgot, by design, no doubt, but nonetheless they forgot that the Lord saw and remembered their sin. They forgot that the Lord looked upon their sin. They had deceived themselves into thinking that there were things that they could do in secret that nobody would know. And before we judge them too harshly, you and I, we oftentimes deliberately forget that the Lord sees and the Lord pays attention to the sin that we play around with in our lives as well. 
And so our sin, that little cheating that we might do or with the numbers or something like that, those websites that many of us go on that we think, well, everyone's in bed, no one will know, or everyone's out of the office and my door is shut. And so we go on those little sites there. That little thing that is between you and another person, that little fling thing that's going on, we won't take it too far, but you're playing around with it. We think they're a secret. We think because no one on earth knows them, our mom and dad don't know, our wives don't know, our husbands don't know, our boss isn't aware, the government doesn't know about it. We think that nobody knows about it, including the Lord. Notice what the Lord says here. He says, your sin is before my face. And so I think this is a valuable, excuse me, I'm sorry. I think this is a valuable place for us to just consider for a moment. If you've mistakenly drawn the conclusion that the Lord doesn't see your life as well, you're setting yourselves up for judgment. If you've wrongly concluded that, again, since mom or dad doesn't know or your spouse doesn't know or your boss doesn't know, then the Lord must not know. Then I, I just reveal to you what I have to reveal to myself. Our conclusion is wrong if that's where we've landed. And look, I've been around churches long enough I've been around Christians long enough to know that there are many church-going people who think that God who think that God either forgets or never sees our secret sins. Folks who come to church, they make a profession of godliness all the while pretending that those areas of sin are not a part of their lives. And that is one of the great deceptions of sin. Let's guard ourselves from that foolishness and guard ourselves from that deception. Because our sin cannot be hidden from the Lord. It's ever before him, as it says here. Now, God was willing to heal Israel from their sin. He's invited them to come back to him again and again and again. And verse 1 says that. But not, he would not heal them as long as they acted as if they could secretly sin and the Lord would not notice. And again, to quote the Lord, I'm not sure if I said this, but early, the Lord said, yeah, I did quote it earlier. To quote him from earlier... Until they realized they needed a physician, they would never, there would be no healing for their, for their ailments. Jesus tells us that. Now their kings and their princes, they loved the sin. Look, verse 3 says that. Chapter 7, verse 3. And they gave themselves to sin, but the Lord doesn't love it. So notice what he says. They're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leaven. He calls them their adulterers. He says that they are a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. Now the, the baker would cease to stir the fire when the oven reached the temperature that it need to. So they would keep stoking the coals or whatever it is until the oven got to a particular heat and then they would cook what they needed to. And an oven or the fire that heats up that oven in the Scripture... It's common in the Bible. You even see it in some secular literature. It refers to a person's inordinate sexual desires when they are given them, they're burning in lust. I think Paul even references it in 1 Corinthians. Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's that concept. It's that idea here. And the Lord's point here is that like a fully heated oven, Israel was stoked up to run after their idols. They were like coals of a freshly stoked fire that was ready to bake bread. They were burning 
with passion, with temptation. And so they would run after it. There's a reason why the Jewish people and any people gave themselves to the idolatry that they gave themselves because it was so closely aligned with and tied into sexual morality. And so your church service would be an orgy of sorts. And many people, yeah, that sounds great. Put me down. I'm in on it. Because they were burning with passion and burning with their lust. He says they're like an oven when the, uh, when the baker has stopped stoking the flame. He also compares them in verse 8 to a cake not turned. The idea being they're sort of blackened and burned on one side, but completely uncooked on the other. Useless. I think we see an example of this or this kind of idea in the book of Revelation where the Lord says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. You're useless. And all I can do is spew you out of my mouth. He says, you're like a cake unturned, burned on one side, uncooked on the other, good for nothing but to be thrown away and to start over. I can't help but think of the pancakes that I have made many a time at my home for my kids or something. And I get busy, I start reading the paper, doing something else, and you come back and they're just completely ruined. And my plan, of course, is cook it lightly on the other side and then put the burnt side on the plate and, you know, the kids will never know, you know, or whatever. But, of course, you just got to throw them away. But when does that happen? As I think, anybody ever do it? You burn the pancakes? A lot of you. Mostly men, I see. All right? But when does that happen? It happens when we stop paying attention. Israel stopped paying attention. Israel began wandering down a path to sin. And before they knew it, they were completely engulfed in that sin. Everyone else walks into the kitchen, and there's smoke all over the place, and they're thinking, what is going on in here? Alarms are going off, and you're reading the paper. You have no idea. You haven't been paying attention, but everybody else knows. Going on, verse 9, he says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim, he says, is like a silly dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I'll bring them down like the birds of heaven. I'll discipline them according to the report made to their con, uh, gr- congregation. Now, verse 9, again, he calls them unturned uh, cakes. That's verse 8, actually, uh, because they weren't paying attention. Well, verse 9 is the same idea. He says, strangers devoured their strength, but he, hasn't, he doesn't even know it. He's not paying attention. He's not aware. He says, gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, but again, he has no idea. How sad when a person's heart is slowly hardening to sin, and the last person to realize it is the person, the person to whom it is happening. And the rest of us who know that person well, love that person, we begin to see it. And it's just that little tinge of an attitude where there's just a little bit of a hardness of heart or they're beginning to drift away from the fellowship. And we see it, and the last person to see it oftentimes is the person to whom it is happening to. I think one of the saddest Bible verses in the Scripture is Judges 16.20. I memorized this verse many years ago. This is the story where Samson has been playing around with his sin and with Delilah and that whole mess some of you are familiar with. And he says to her, look, if you cut my hair, I'll be just like everybody else. And 
And so she gets him drunk and he goes to sleep or whatever the scenario is. And she cuts his hair. And she calls the Philistines to come and attack him. She's a great girlfriend. And she calls the Philistines to come and attack. And she said, this is 1620, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And it says here, and he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. How sad, isn't it? That the source of his strength, not his hair, but the Lord had departed him and he had no idea. That slow hardening, that sin, the effect that it can have on our hearts. And it happens when we're not aware. And we look at Samson and I say, poor Samson. He brought it on himself, certainly, but poor Samson because he played with sin and he played with sin and he played with sin and now sin ruined him. And it did so because he did not know that the Lord had departed. My friends, if we ignore our walk with the Lord, and whether that be we ignore our devotional life, your devotional life, this is just an aside, that is the source of your strength. That's your food. Don't ignore your, um, your uh, devotional life. And whether that be our devotional life, whether it be times of prayer individually or with others, whether it's the gathering together in fellowship with other believers that are running after the Lord so you can be sort of in, imbibed with strength during that instance there, all those things, if we begin to ignore those things, we begin to lose our spiritual vitality. And we especially lose our spiritual vitality when we play around with sin. And the children of Israel are doing that. And they're wrongfully assuming that no one, not even the Lord, will ever know. And when we do that, it's not long before the enemy is upon us as he was upon Samson. And we too discover that the Lord has left us. And we're left to suffer the consequences. In verse 9, he talks about the gray hair. The gray hair would be, if you will, a sign of departing strength. That man who was young and vigorous and powerful and he's beginning to just get a little bit older and there's things that he can no longer do. Here, Israel's strength is departing. But again, it says Israel knew it not. And so there was a little bit of carelessness here. There was a little indifference there. Increasingly developing in their heart was a fondness for the world. They were spending less and less time in prayer and in the Word of God. All of those are indicators of a person that is beginning or has already begun to slide back. That their soul is in a state of decline. And so notice what Paul tells his protege, Timothy. Now, Timothy is the pastor of the church. He's the bishop of that community. He's good, right? He's solid. Not to worry about Timothy. Timothy doesn't need to worry anymore about his spiritual vitality. Just the opposite is true. What does Paul say to him? He says, practice these things. You read the context. He says, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. That is that you continue to move forward, Timothy. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in these things, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Even Timothy, the spiritual leader of his community, had to keep a close watch on himself, lest he drift back. Verse 10 of Hosea, it says, The pride of Israel testifies to, the face, to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, a silly, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt 
and going to Assyria. Now, just quickly, historically, well, not even that. When Israel descended into its sin, God brought neighboring nations to bring judgment upon them for the purpose of waking them up, right? That they would come back to him. Well, when those neighboring nations began to come against Israel, Israel then went to neighboring nations and sought to establish alliances with them. And so rather than returning to the Lord or going to the Lord or asking the Lord for his help and his assistance, instead they go to Egypt. And they say, hey, look, this nation is coming against us. Will you help us? Or they go to Assyria and they say, well, I'm sure we could work out a deal. Instead of you coming and attack us, can't we do this and can't we do that? And rather than turning to the Lord, they, they turn to their former captive, Egypt, and their future captive, Assyria, thinking that those individuals will help them. They will not. And loving them too much, the Lord will not abandon them. And so what's he say? He says, I'll spread over them my net. I'll bring them down like the birds of heaven. I'll discipline them according to the report made uh, to their congregation. He's going to let them, that fail. He's not going to say, all right, well, if Assyria wants to take care of you, let them take care of you. Egypt does. He's going to even let that fail so that they'll return. Verse 13, woe to them. They've strayed from me, destruction to them, for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And what is the Lord's desire? It's ever to redeem, as it says in verse 13. It's to restore. That's what God desires when we go astray. Not to bring down the hammer to make us pay or something like that. It's that we would return. But instead of returning, they instead begin to accuse the Lord, it says there. They blame the Lord. They speak lies against the Lord. Have you ever spoken lies against the Lord? I did. This is the worst thing ever. It's not the worst thing ever. But I had like an hour. I was going to mow the lawn. I went out to start the lawnmower, and the lawnmower wouldn't work. It was about five, ten years ago. My, I think, it, no, that was the door. That was another time. Anyhow, and I began, if you will, to speak lies against the Lord. Lord, what is the matter with you? Why won't you start this lawnmower? Why are you like this? Why do you hate me? Why do you torture me? You know, this kind of thing. And the Lord's like, who are you talking to? You know what I mean? I'm the Lord. Like, and all this stuff. It's just crazy. Not realizing, look, we just live in a fallen world. And sometimes lawnmowers don't work and you have to bring them to Charlie and he gets them going. You know, and things like It's just the way it is, these things. Stop screaming at heaven, you know, which is as I was doing. Speaking lies against the Lord. They say, essentially, they say this. Look, the, the Lord, the problem's not with us. The problem's with you. It says, also, it goes on to say, they cry to the Lord. We saw that back in verses 1 through 3. But notice 14, but not with their whole heart. They don't cry to the Lord with their whole heart. It says they wail upon their beds, but they don't repent. And again, they, mourn their, they don't mourn their sin. They mourn the discipline that their sin brought them. The Lord says in verse 15, I trained you. I provided for you. I protected you. I guarded you. I strengthened you from the enemy. 
And what was their response? It says there they devised evil against the Lord. Verse 16, they return, but not upward. And so then the disciplining process needs to continue for the nation of Israel. Friends, the disciplining disciplining process, it does not need to continue for any one of us in this room. Now, my hope is that every one of us is doing great. We love the Lord. We're running hard after the Lord. We fail. We come back to him. We return and he washes us and he cleanses us. But the reality is I suspect that some of us aren't doing really well in our relationship with the Lord right now. And if we continue down that path, the Lord will bring a disciplining process. Remember we talked about the hedge. I don't know if you remember, but it was like chapter two or something that there was a hedge about, hedged up with thorns. Well, those thorns, those prickles, they hurt. And so you wander a little bit and you get that prickle and it gets you back on to the path. The Lord brings this discipline in our lives for our good. It needed to continue for the unrepentant Israelites. It does not need to continue for any of us. We can return to the Lord. We should return to the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you. I didn't mention a whole bunch of specific sins this morning that are going on, that could be going on in your life, and I'm trying to get you or whatever. I didn't call anyone's family and, you know, what your husband need to hear today, what your wife need to hear today. But if the Lord put an area on your heart where you've been playing around with some things and you've been drifting and you've been wandering, then I want to encourage you, hear his voice and heed his voice this morning. And so if there is an area of sin or compromise, there's an area of complacency in your walk with the Lord that you've been sensing through our time here this morning or maybe even the Lord's been just doing it over the last week or two weeks in your life. Give that area to him. Let him have it. Acknowledge it for what it is. Turn from it. And I want to close with these words, and I hope they resonate in all of our hearts this week. This is from the book of Hebrews. It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. If you're hearing the voice of the Lord about an area of your life, respond. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the ability to come back to you. And Lord, for those of us in this room that are in Christ, that we've recognized our sin, we've confessed it as such, we've received the gift of eternal life and cleansing that is in Christ Jesus, would you teach us in your word that we can confess our sin and you're faithful and just, you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Lord, we pray for any that are in this room today that have been playing around with some things or ignoring you in some ways. And Lord, even as you're calling them back, would you confirm in their hearts that they can come and that you'll receive. Father, we pray for any of us that are here today that don't yet know Christ. We haven't looked to the cross. We haven't asked him into our lives to forgive us, to cleanse us, to take over, to be our Lord. And we just got a whole heap of stuff going on. But I pray for these folks as well. Lord, that by your mercy, you would reveal to them that Christ will forgive. And Lord, you'd open up their hearts even this morning to believe. And so Lord, in a fresh way, every one of us We lay ourselves before you. And we pray our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again for listening. 
If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.